Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. We are recording this podcast three days before the November 3rd election. That is on Halloween, and this is truly the spookiest Halloween of my lifetime. The COVID crisis is in its second wave, and really no end in sight, as the production and distribution of an effective vaccine may still be at least a year or more away, and even then, no certainty that it will work. And the election in the United States that could re-elect an outright climate denier as president, which will pretty much make hitting any of the targets set out by the scientists at the IPCC impossible. It may mean the end, as Noam Chomsky says, of organized human life on the planet. Now joining us to discuss the current moment and his new book he co-authored with Noam Chomsky is Bob Poland. He's the co-founder of Perry, the Political Economy Institute Research in Amherst, Massachusetts. And the book is The Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. So in, in the new book, there's a quote from Chomsky, which I'll read. It might be considered outrageous to assert that today's Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in human history. Perhaps so. But in the light of the stakes, what else can one rationally conclude? And Noam lays out in the book that's the twin threats of the climate crisis and the threat of nuclear war that leads him to that conclusion. Well, most of our audience is going to agree with this, Bob. But does Biden offer a real alternative? Now, you and I have talked before. We know a, a Biden alternative is better than a climate denial. Uh, but when you dig into the Biden alternative, I guess what I'm asking really is, is it an effective alternative? Well, it, it's certainly, as you say, let's start with the fact that it isn't climate denial. So there we go. I mean, that is a major advance on, as Noam said, the most dangerous organization in human history because they're, you know, aggressively climate denialists. Uh, the Biden plan has some good features. Um, it does talk about, you know, a spending level in advancing a green economy, uh, transitioning out of fossil fuels, or no, I don't want to say that, a green economy uh, at a scale that I think is appropriate at about two and a half percent of GDP every year. Uh, that's about right. He does talk about job creation through these investments and that they should be good jobs, union jobs. He talks about just transition for workers that are now in the fossil fuel economy and will obviously inevitably see their jobs disappear. So far, so good. The bad parts of the uh, Biden plan, and these are significant uh, problems in my view, is that he puts a lot of emphasis on carbon capture technology that will enable fossil fuel production to continue. So as we've seen in the debates with Biden and with Kamala Harris, they continue to say we are not in favor of eliminating fracking, uh, that is uh, producing natural gas and burning it to generate energy. Um, and so if you're going to allow 
the continuation of burning fossil fuels, the only way that that can happen and still conceivably reduce carbon emissions is through this so-called carbon capture technology. But carbon capture technology is, is unproven. Uh, it has never worked at commercial scale. Even if we can get there in 20 or 30 years, we need to uh, reduce emissions in 10 years uh, dramatically. And so the carbon capture technology, in my view, is certainly not a solution, not over the next 20 years. And unfortunately, therefore, the, the Biden program, which emphasizes this so heavily, more so even than uh, solar power, wind power, high efficiency has, you know, major, major problems that we have to fight against. Now, as we talked about earlier in a previous interview, when we talked about the Biden plan, he doesn't, in, in at least what's on his website, he doesn't talk about phasing out fossil fuel. All the, as you say, all the emphasis is on carbon capture. But at the end of the last debate, he actually, it seemed almost got off script, where he acknowledged there does have to be a phasing out of fossil fuel. Uh, here, here's the moment from the debate. Would he close down falls, the oil industry? It falls, Would you close down the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would that's transition. a big It is a big statement. So, so he actually does come out and say, uh, phase out fossil fuel. But then after the debate, he kind of walked it back and said it's going to take a long time. It could take, I think he even at some point said it could take decades. Um, so, so again, he seems so concerned about his electoral fortunes how this is going to sound in, in places like Pennsylvania that depends on, I shouldn't say Pennsylvania depends on fracking, where fracking is an important uh, business in, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania doesn't depend on fracking. Some people play it like it does. But, but that said, what I don't understand is why he doesn't hammer the issue of just transition, which I know you've done a lot of work on. Why isn't he hammering that there's no reason why workers in the fossil fuel industry should be the ones that bear the burden for something that's developed, you, know, you could say for the benefit, these days I'm not so sure benefits the right word for fossil fuel, but anyway, has been made use of by the whole society. So there's no reason why workers that work in this industry shouldn't be paid to transition to another other kinds of jobs. Uh, so I, I don't. Do you get it? I don't get why he's not hammering this. Well, I I get it. I mean, if I put if I think in terms of being a, a mainstream politician, you know, trying to get elected, uh, it doesn't mean it's right, and it doesn't mean he couldn't come couldn't have come up with a much better approach. Uh, it would have been uh, much more forceful. But um, you know, I just did a study for the state of Pennsylvania commissioned by uh, labor groups and environmental groups in the state on exactly this issue. And, you know, basically, if we look at uh, oil and gas uh, extraction and support activities in the state of Pennsylvania, there's less than 30,000 jobs in total. And that's in a labor force of over 6 million people. So that's one half of 1% of employment in the state. And then if if we allow that, of course, you know, we're not going to shut down the industry in one year. We're going to phase it out over, say, 20 years. Now, we're looking at something like, you know, a thousand jobs per year that are going to be lost 
and we have to find new employment for these thousand people. This is easy to do. And so what we we estimate in our study, we say, look, for these thousand people a year, let's say we guarantee them a new job. Let's say we guarantee that the wage for the new job is going to be equal to the old job. Let's say that we will also pay for retraining and relocation as needed. You know, we end up with an overall budget for this just transition. Oh, and that we take and we guarantee their pensions. We're looking at an overall budget that's like one one hundredth of one percent of the state GDP. It's minuscule. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that needs to be hammered at, focused on. And, you know, if Biden gets elected, hopefully uh, these kinds of this evidence, this kind of program is going to filter into what the Democrats are going to be advancing. And given the urgency of the issue, uh, and if, you know, 20 years is too long and so on, it's it's a pittance of money if you pay every single one of those workers a full wage until they have another job. I mean, given what the Fed is churning out in money right now, this this is not even a fraction of what's being put in. It's nothing. It's not, yeah, the Fed, since March, uh, since the pandemic and the, and the economic collapse resulting from the pandemic, the Fed has bought up uh, about $2.5 trillion of Wall Street assets, $2.5 trillion. So that's about 12% of U.S. GDP in six months, okay, $2.5 trillion. Uh, for the state of Pennsylvania, if we were to give everybody, uh, as I said, if we're talking about the 1,000 workers or, or double it, let's say it's 2,000, let's say it's 3,000. We're looking well, let, at, Let's say it's all of them. Okay, let's say it's all of them. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, we're looking at maybe, you know, I haven't done for, I've done it year to year to year to year. So, so let's say it's, you know, $5 billion uh, a year. Uh, uh, which is an overestimate relative to what we've calculated. Again, this is a pittance. It's not even a rounding error relative to the amount of funding that would be available if we say, look, the climate, the climate crisis is an existential threat. We have to proceed with a transition and we have to take care of all the workers and all the communities that are currently dependent on fossil fuels. This is an absolutely trivial problem to solve if there is the political will. Well, it just beats me why Biden won't say it, except he's concerned less about the consequences of what that might cost and more concerned about getting the fossil fuel angry at him. I I guess that's the real consideration here. Well, sure, that's what it is. You know, I mean, you know, you you know, you have the Koch brothers lined up and other other fossil fuel industry people lined up and and, you know, you, you know, jobs lost. And there there is this real thing that these jobs like jobs and fracking in Pennsylvania, they pay. They pay over one hundred thousand dollars a year on average. The jobs in the clean energy economy pay on average seventy thousand dollars a year. Um, and they're not jobs that are there. So I've been in, you know, situ- I've been given talks to union groups and so forth. And what I hear is, you know, the people say, okay, professor, you've got your numbers. That's all well and good. But the environmentalists don't really care about us. 
And so these fracking jobs that we have, they're real. It's money in our pockets now. What you're talking about is pie-in-the-sky stuff, and we have no evidence it's going to happen. Well, it wouldn't be such pie-in-the-sky if Biden would come out and make an absolute real commitment to it. That's right. Uh, But we have to overcome that, and it's not going to come from Biden. It has to come from movement activity, and that's the kind of work that these groups are doing, like Labor Network for Sustainability and the groups I'm working with in Appalachia, uh, such as the Keystone Research Institute and, uh, you know, uh, the Reimagine Appalachia. These are great groups, important groups. And they're the ones that are making the case. And there's another one called the Marshall Plan for Appalachia. Uh, th- these groups really deserve support. And hopefully they are going to get through to uh, the new administration. So hopefully there will be one. And, and that'll, be a, that'll be a centerpiece. Now, it's not like it's going to happen overnight, the transition out of fossil fuels. They're, right now, sustainables are not uh, uh, don't produce enough energy to per, to replace fossil fuel tomorrow. So there's got to be a transition. It will take some time. Uh, obviously, the sooner, the better. Uh, what do you make of the argument that natural gas is part of the transition? Uh, I vehemently disagree. Fossil fuels are part of the transition in that, as you just said, they're not going to wind down in one year. There's no way it is possible. Let's say they wind down in 20 years or even 30 years at most. We can still get to zero emissions if they wind down in 30 years, but they have to wind down. We have to cut them three, four percent starting tomorrow, and then the percentage of the contraction has to uh, get bigger every year because we're, you know, the base is getting smaller. So they have to wind down. We can't build up new fracking operations or new natural gas operations. The argument for fa- for natural gas as a so-called bridge fuel has two features. Number one, when you burn natural gas, it reduces emissions uh, relative to burning coal. Okay, that much is true, but it still generates emissions. And if you need to get to zero emissions, that means you can't burn natural gas any more than you can burn coal. Uh, And the second argument about uh, natural gas is that, uh, yes, we have under fracking, it can be done really cheaply and we'll have low prices. And fracking is cheaper than the traditional technology for extracting natural gas. It doesn't mean it's any cleaner. And so that we have to stop, we we have to wind down the operations that we have. And if you allow investments in new fracking and new natural gas, those guys aren't going away in five years. You know, these things are going to last for 30 years, 40 years. Uh, and, you know, that we'll never hit the emission reduction target if that's the commitment to natural gas. So here's here's the rub. It seems pretty obvious that the market mechanisms alone, the market on its own, even government sort of triggered market mechanisms aren't going to get us there, certainly not soon enough. And the, But the other side of it is we ain't getting to some kind of new economic, political, social system, socialism or whatever you want to call it, uh, in, in time either. Chomsky writes in your book, uh, dismantling capitalism is impossible within the time frame necessary for taking urgent action. 
which requires a major national, indeed international mobilization if severe crisis is to be averted. I mean, that, that's a heck of a rub because he's right. This, you know, this has to be serious action has to begin like tomorrow or if it's a Biden administration, if if they get serious, if the mass movement pushes them, you know, this has to be started right away. Uh, but capitalism and, the, and the, the power of the financial sector, which is heavily invested in fossil fuels, uh, they ain't getting dismantled anytime soon either. So here's the thing. Uh, if we, you know, if we want to think about it, an entirely different American social system that we want to call socialism, uh, you know, of course, it's not going to happen in 10 years and 20 years, much as we may want it to happen. And much at least as, not in the United States. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but um, it's easy to envision a dramatically different variant of capitalism that would be uh, defending the future of the planet and advancing a much more egalitarian project relative to our current neoliberal, uh, you know, dominance. And here's here's some simple things that we can think about that are realistic and would also move us uh, dramatically in the right direction. If we say, for example, under Biden, if we say that we impose a regulation that every single utility uh, that generates electricity has to cut its uh, CO2 emissions by 5% per year, let's say, by 5% per year, realistic, and if they don't do it, the CEO goes to jail. Uh, they will cut emissions 5% per year. Or we say that CEO goes to jail and they pay a $50 million fine. The CEO will figure out a way to cut emissions by 5%. That will transform the energy market because we have the capacity to build up clean energy, uh, solar, wind especially. Uh, solar and wind right now are at cost parity or cheaper than uh, fossil fuels. We just have to build them up. So uh, you can build them up very, very rapidly. It will be within capitalism. Uh, there will be opportunities within capitalism for new types of small businesses to form. For example, cooperative uh, clean energy enterprises, or for example, what is already happening in the plain states, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, where farmers, private capitalists, are putting up uh, wind turbines, having their own um, solar farms. They're making money off of it. They're capitalists, and they're selling it. And so the highest proportion of clean energy relative to the overall economy is actually right now in the United States in the plain states. Uh, and this is within capitalism. So these are things that can start happening immediately at large scale. I mean, I think a lot of the left, the socialist left, really have to accept, if some haven't, but maybe some have, but have to accept this is going to have to happen within capitalism or ain't going to happen fast enough. So that really is going to require a mass movement that really forces uh, the case. But it also is going to require some sections of the elites to, to take this all more seriously. It seems to be starting a little bit. I mean, you see, you know, in the financial sector, a more serious uh, recognition that it's a crisis. I don't think any of the solutions they want to go to are serious. 
But I was struck by something in your book, uh, and I'm going to read a quote. Uh, you're, you're talking about a, a mainstream, a, a prominent orthodox economist, and you, you write this. The fact that the single most prominent orthodox economist in the world working on climate change considers the risks from four degrees centigrade. That's four. I mean, the world starts to get unlivable at three. Anyway, you go on. The risk from four degrees centigrade of warming to be, quote, optimal tells us everything about the bankrupt state of orthodox economics. You're telling me there's serious, quote unquote, economists that think four degrees is a livable planet? Uh, I'm telling you more specifically that William Nordhaus, that's who I'm quoting there, who won the Nobel Prize in economics two years ago. And what I'm quoting from is Nordhaus's actual Nobel Prize uh, lecture in 2018, December 2018, uh, that came, that he gave this lecture two months, only two months after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that we have to stabilize the global average mean temperature at one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels, or else we face dire consequences. Nordhaus, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, says four degrees is optimal. So yeah, I mean, this is insanity. And this is not some crazy right-wing hack on Fox News. This is William Nordhaus, Yale University, Nobel laureate, 2018 in economics. But he's not a climate scientist. He's not a climate scientist, and neither am I. And so we have to rely on climate science. And so I don't know which climate scientist Nordhaus is listening to. I'm willing to accept whatever the IPCC, as we know, the IPCC is not a research organization. They gather the research and they synthesize and they put out what they think is mainstream perspectives. And you know what? Maybe the mainstream is wrong. We know a lot of mainstream research on a lot of subjects is wrong. But let's say, you know, 98% of climate scientists uh, will, will accept the broad parameters of what comes out of the IPCC. And by their 2018 report, uh, October, they said we have to get to 45% reduction in emissions by 2030 and zero, net zero by 2050, to stabilize at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. That's their, that's their overall conclusion. So I don't, I'm willing to go with that. And I've, you know, some people have criticized me and saying, well, that's too slow. Uh, you know, the IPCC is too, is too conservative. Maybe they are, but okay, let's take that one. But then we have Nordhaus. The Nobel Prize, the only Nobel Prize winner in economics, by the way, who has won it based on his work on exactly climate science. And his Nobel lecture says, let's get to four degrees and stabilize there. And that's optimal. Crazy. What does he mean by optimal? I mean, the models I've seen from uh, whether it's uh, Stern, who used to be the chief economist at the World Bank, or you go IPCC and so many other scientists, four degrees, most of the Southern Hemisphere is not livable. I mean, millions and millions of people heading north. I mean, what? what? Well, you'll have to ask Nordhaus. <laughs> I, I mean, read his Nobel lecture. It's right there. I mean, let, to be fair, he says, okay, we get to a two-degree 
uh, warming by 2050. Uh, so that's he says, let's get there by 2050. But then he says, OK, we can keep going. And so by 2150, uh, we're at four degrees and we stabilize it. Uh, and he's and the reason he says it's optimal is because he actually is saying that the costs of climate change going up to four degrees, eh, they're not that bad. Uh, that's what William Nordhaus says. Uh, yeah, it's it's insanity, but he got the Nobel Prize. Well, I guess I guess maybe if you're looking at it from the point of view of the elites, maybe they think it's not that bad. <laughs> I don't know. Again, ask, ask Nordhaus. I can't answer what he's thinking. And I wonder how much this informs the thinking of of you know the the leaders of the financial and corporate sector and all that. I mean, if they're listening to him, then maybe that's why they're not very worried. You know, there are people in the financial world, the elites, that have uh, much more serious views, I would say. I mean, in fairness, I don't really like Mike Bloomberg for a lot of reasons, but he Bloomberg is pretty active around supporting, you know, climate uh, transition. And, you know, Bloomberg News is puts out some pretty good stuff, including just the other day, according to Bloomberg News, they said, well, uh, investments in clean energy, so-called green bonds, has hit one trillion dollars. Uh, so, you know, in that way, you know, there are people like that. And, and in terms of, you know, what, what are the capitalists' interests here? Well, obviously, fossil fuel capitalists are going to be vehemently opposed to any kind of transition. But other capitalists, as, as I discuss in our book, there's no reason why capitalists uh, in other sectors of the economy should be opposed to a green transition uh, in that, they are caught, the amount of money they're going to have to pay for energy is going to go down, not up. Uh, it's going to go down because, number one, uh, renewable energy is at cost parity. If you look at the evidence from the Trump's own energy department, Costs uh, per unit kilowatt of electricity are equal or lower from wind and solar geothermal relative to fossil fuels and nuclear. Number two, if you invest in efficiency, that means you pay less by definition. You know, it's going to be 40 per 30, 40 percent less energy needed to light buildings to run industrial machinery. And when you buy clean energy, uh, renewable, you're not going to pay more. You're going to pay less. So people in other sectors in the economy, they should be just fine with a clean energy transition within capitalism. Well, I, I think another thing the left and progressive people are going to have to get their head around is that if if this transition is going to take place, then some of these industries, even some of the big capitalists, some of the financial, the lords of finances, we call them sometimes, they're actually maybe the state, the government is going to have to subsidize them some in order to sort of, I don't know if it's bribing them or cover some of their losses. Like you take the finance sector, uh, very heavily invested in fossil fuels, especially the big asset management companies like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard that buy whole indexes that have fossil fuel on the index. But they also, even in their what they call discretionary funds where they can pick and choose, they buy fossil fuels. 
uh, as they they can just move their money to something else. As you say, they don't have they they could see the closing down of phasing out of fossil fuel, but maybe they might lose something along the way. Uh, Maybe the state will have to, you know, bribe them. Uh, we've talked before about nationalizing the fossil fuel companies. There, even there, there may have to be maybe payments made as part of the nationalization. But I think we have to rethink, uh, you know, the role the government's going to have to play in this to, to induce, uh, seduce, and force uh, these kinds of changes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the for one thing. The fossil fuel industry right now is flat on its back uh, due to the the economic collapse and prior to that due to uh, the price war over oil between Russia and Saudi Arabia. So the oil industry is, you know, lost. I mean, at at its low point, it had lost 50 percent of its value. From uh, from January to April, it's come back somewhat, but it's still way down. Uh, the fracking industry in Pennsylvania is also flat on its back. Uh, they have overbuilt and they can't sell the uh, gas that they have. And so it would be easy for the federal government to come in and simply buy up uh, a majority share of the fossil fuel industry and actually um, shareholders in fossil fuels would probably be very relieved uh, that their shares would be bought up at a price above what the market is willing to pay right now. Uh, And then the government could phase out the industry. It wouldn't be, at least in the short term, all that different than what the Obama administration did with the auto industry in 2009. They bought General Motors and they bought Chrysler. Now, yes, the the Obama administration sold those companies back uh, to the market after a few years of, of stabilization. But in this case, the government could come in and buy it and not sell it back, but phase it out. And that would be consistent with what we have to do in terms of climate stabilization. All right. Well, none of this happens if Trump wins on November 3rd. But let's assume he doesn't. And there is a Biden administration. And as I've said in something I wrote recently, at least there's a conversation about what's effective if there's a Biden administration. Uh, It's not that it's going to be some slam dunk that there's going to be an effective climate policy. But there's a there's space for a mass movement to organize, and there's a hopefully real possibility of pressuring an administration that at least acknowledges the severity of the crisis. So we're gonna keep we're gonna do a, another part or two of this interview, and we're gonna get dig into more. So if there is a Biden administration, what should its policy look like? What what does an effective Green New Deal look like in Bob Poland's point of view? Uh, what What is it that people should be pushing this administration to do? So thanks, Bob. Okay, thanks. And thank you for joining us. And uh, please join us for the other parts on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.